All right, I want to welcome you to Grace Community Church this morning. If you could, give me a thumbs up if you're in the back, if you can hear me well. Thumbs down. I got a thumbs down. What about now? Can you hear me in the back? Thumbs up. All right. I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. We're going to continue today in our study of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. And we're going to ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word today. I'm going to lead us in prayer and I would ask you to pray with me. Father, we lift up our voice to you this morning. And we dare not do that, Lord, except in the name of Jesus, Lord. And we come today, Lord, and in and of ourselves, it's just like we just sung, Lord. All we have to bring in and of ourselves is filthy rags. And so we take our stand today in the name of Jesus, Lord. We ask you to hear us, God, as your children gather together in your name. And we pray, God, that you would bless the preaching of your word today, God, that you would own your word in our ears and in our hearts, God. And we pray, Lord, we come to you as our Father in heaven that gives good gifts to his children. And we ask you, God, to nourish our souls today, Lord, through the preaching of your word. And so I pray all across this room for my brothers and sisters and for all who are here, God, that you would be pleased, Lord, to give us exactly what we need today from your word. Give us Christ, Lord. Give us glimpses of, of Jesus and his glory today. And nourish us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read our text together as we begin today. This is Acts chapter 22. And I'd invite you to read this with me, beginning in verse 22. And we'll go to Acts 23, verse 11. This is God's word to this local church today. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. Verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And he said yes. And the tribute answered. I, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said. But I am a citizen by birth. And those who were about to examine him. Withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a citizen of Rome. And that he had been bound by him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he bound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. 
And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply, saying, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force to bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of God to this local church this morning. And I want to begin by asking you to ponder a question with me today. And here's the question. Okay. Where do we get strength to serve Jesus Christ? Where do we get that strength? Where do we get that courage that drives us to serve Jesus? And I want you to understand the question rightly. Um, Knowing what Jesus would have us to do and how Jesus would have us to live, that's one battle, and we need to know that. But having the strength and the courage to actually do what Jesus commands us to do is an entirely different thing. And I want you to think about where do we find that strength? Where do we find the strength to serve Jesus? And what we see in this text is that as Jesus deals with the Apostle Paul in this text, he shows us that the strength to serve Jesus comes from the presence of Jesus in our life, the sustaining presence of Jesus. And what we're going to see is that Jesus gives us his sustaining presence, even in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. So that's where we're headed this morning. And I want us to make sure that everybody understands the context that we just jumped into in Acts 22. At this point in, in Paul's life, 
This is the backside of a really bad week in his life. This is probably the worst week that he's ever had on planet Earth. And so what's happened is Paul has come into the city of Jerusalem on the backside of his third missionary journey. And he comes into the city and one bad thing after another has begun to happen. Upon his arrival, he was rejected um, and, and snubbed by his own brothers in Christ, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They cast doubts about him. And he came with this massive monetary gift from the Gentile churches to give to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And he was rejected. And then right after that, he goes into the temple and he's slandered and he's lied about. He's in the middle of this purification vow. And these liars and these slanderers, they charge him with defiling the temple. And then they begin to beat him. And he's beaten so badly in Acts 22 that he's not able to ascend a flight of, a flight of stairs. He's been physically beaten. And we, we're reminded in this text that he's standing before a group of people that hate him. And Ryan reminded us of this last week that the, the unbelieving Jews... That he's addressing in, in, in this speech. They hate him. And we remember the reason why. In the last word of verse. Uh, last word of chapter 22. Verse 21. Paul claims that he's on this mission. Being sent by Jesus to the Gentiles. That's why he's a hated man. In Jerusalem. That he's going around the known world at this time. And he's announcing this glorious gospel that through Jesus Christ, anyone and everyone can be reconciled to God through the finished work of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. And he's offering Gentiles who believe the gospel the same status before God as Jews who have believed the gospel. And these Jews hate that message. They can't tolerate it. And in verse 22, we see them shouting and screaming before the Apostle Paul. And they say, away with such a man from the earth. Away with such a fellow from the earth. And that's just the idiom of kill him right now. Take his life. Take his breath. He doesn't deserve to live any longer. And so they're, they're shouting for his death. And this is where our text begins this morning. The Apostle Paul is in Roman custody. He's in Roman custody. They've arrested him, but they still don't have charges of why, why is this man in jail? And the charges weren't established in this defense speech before the Jews in the temple. And so our text begins with this Roman plot that, that the charges are now going to be established by torturing the, the Apostle Paul. And this is what we have here, that this Roman tribune... That he commands that the Apostle Paul be flogged. Be flogged. And this is a brutal form of Roman to torture. That, 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 we, that we are moments away from the Apostle Paul being chained to a whipping post. And beat with, with leather straps. With bone and metal embedded in these straps. The Roman uh, flogging was designed to rip flesh off human bones. And, and the whole purpose is they want to beat a confession out of the Apostle Paul. What did you do? What did you do? Why, why, why this screaming? Why these murder chants um, against the Apostle Paul? 
And so we have this Roman punishment that he's about to be subjected to. And this is something that the Lord Jesus actually endures. Right before Jesus goes to the cross for us, we are told in the Gospels that Jesus was flogged for you. When's the last time you praised God for that? That he took your place and he took all of your punishment. And part of what Jesus took for you is he was chained to a whipping post. And he was beat repeatedly with leather straps embedded with bones. And flesh was ripped off of his body. And he did that for you. For no sin of his own, he was condemned for you. Jesus actually endured this form of Roman torture. But we're told in this passage that the Apostle Paul is spared. Is spared. Look at verse 15. It's when he, uh, verse 25. It's when the Apostle Paul appeals to his citizenship that everything changes. That all of a sudden this Roman soldier, he finds out that he's about to break Roman law. And one of the things that Roman law provided was it provided safety for Roman citizens. They could not be flogged without a trial first. And so that's why you see these Roman officials in verse 29, they're freaking out. They're terrified. They realize that they have broken Roman law and they themselves are now um, subject to brutal forms of Roman justice. And so we see Paul's citizenship appealed to. And at the final moments, he is spared from this, this flogging. This is the first time in the book of Acts that we find out that the Apostle Paul is a Roman citizen. And, and earlier in the book of Acts, he had mentioned that he's a citizen of the city of Tarsus. But this Roman citizenship is an entirely different thing with, an, with a whole new set of privileges. And even more surprising than that, the text tells us that Paul is a Roman citizen by birth. That this is, this is something that his dad uh, had that was passed down to him from the moment he was born. He was born into the state of privileges, the privileges of Roman citizenship. And this detail of his citizenship sparing him from this brutal form of, of torture, this is a helpful reminder for us that in general, by and large, citizenship always comes with privileges. Okay? By and large, that's how it works. And I think that's a helpful reminder to us because Scripture tells us that every one of us who are in Jesus Christ this morning, every single one of us, Scripture says, we're citizens of heaven. We have a citizenship in heaven. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's just a little helpful reminder that our citizenship is, it comes with massive privileges. And just like we see Paul's Roman citizenship deliver him from brutal Roman torture in this passage, we have a citizenship, brothers and sisters, praise God for this, that no citizen of heaven will ever face the wrath of God. Will never face it. Our citizenship comes with privileges. We have been delivered from all condemnation and all punishment. And we have been given a citizenship in heaven. And we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in this text, he evades this 
brutal form of Roman torture. But the problem is he's still in jail and they still have no charges established against him. So you've got to have a reason to be in chains. And so what, is the, what do the Roman officials do? Is they appeal to the Jewish council. And he's about to call the Jewish council to meet. And at this council, they're going to establish the charges against the Apostle Paul. What did this man do wrong? And so here we're introduced to the Sanhedrin. And beginning in chapter 23, Paul takes his stand against this Jewish council. And this is the second, you remember last week, Ryan told us about this, these defenses that the Apostle Paul is going to make as the book of Acts closes. And this is the second apologia, the second of his defense speeches before his accusers. This Jewish council that he's speaking to in chapter 23, this is known as the Sanhedrin. And history tells us that this council is made up of 71 Jewish men, and they were comprised of chief priests and also lay elders and also scribes and experts in the law of Moses. And then sitting at the head of that council was a man known as the high priest himself. And in this text, his name is Ananias. The Sanhedrin is a judicial body in Israel. And during this time of Roman subjugation, their powers had been extremely limited. And this is who Paul is brought before. And I'll remind us, this is the same Jewish body that crucified our Lord, that delivered our Lord to the Romans to be crucified. This is the same Jewish body that condemned the Lord Jesus. This is the same Jewish council that earlier in the book of Acts, they arrested the apostle um, Peter and, and John, and, and they tried them in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. And this is actually the same counsel that the Apostle Paul himself, in Acts 9, that he received letters from the high priest. He, he had a mission sanctioned by the Sanhedrin to go into other regions of the Roman Empire to persecute the Christian church. This is the Sanhedrin. They're presented to us. In the New Testament as wicked, wicked men and as servants of Satan, servants of Satan. And this is who Paul stands before in, in chapter 23. And in beginning in verse one, he begins to take his stand. And the very first thing that the apostle Paul does is he, he pleads the innocence of his own conscience. Look at what he says in verse one. He says, I have lived my life before God. And all good conscience. And so these men hate him. They hate him. They hate what he stands for. They hate that gospel that's offered to the Gentiles. How dare this man offer Gentiles the same status before God as Jews? How dare you do that? And then he gets before this council and he opens up his mouth. And just picture him standing before 71 Jewish authorities. And the first thing he says is, I have done absolutely nothing wrong. I am innocent. I'm an innocent man standing before my accusers. And it's for this very thing that the high priest orders him. And he's smacked right in the mouth. He's struck on the mouth. They cannot even tolerate um, his claim. How dare you pretend to stand before this Jewish council and that you would be 
the innocent one. He struck on the mouth. And I love this quote from Matthew Henry. He says this about the Sanhedrin. He says, when they could not charge Paul with any crime, they thought it crime enough that he claimed to be innocent. And that's a good reminder for us. Um, it's, not, it's not a crime to stand before your accusers and say, I've done nothing wrong. And that's exactly what Paul did. And he smacked him, had it ordered to be smacked right in the mouth. He pleads his conscience. And then the next thing in verse 3 that we see Paul do is he turns to the high priest and he does two things. He rebukes him and he warns this man. He rebukes him and he warns this man. He rebukes him because the high priest just had him struck because he ordered him to be struck in con contrary to, to God's law. How dare you, be, you, you stand as though you were administering God's law and yet you ordered me, me to be struck contrary to God's law. This is a rebuke to the high priest. Most powerful man in Israel and he's rebuking him. He's rebuking him. And then he warns him and he says, um, and he says this, you are a whitewashed wall and you are going to be struck by God. And I want you to think about, and, you're, and deep in your heart, I want you to, to consider this this morning. Do you have a place in your life for language like this? You are a whitewashed wall, and God is going to strike you, you wicked man. You have a place for that. It makes us feel nervous, okay? We live in a culture that, that this strikes against a lot of our leans towards politeness. And the only thing I would remind us of is there's a time and a place for language like this in the word of God. And we need to be really, really careful if we don't have it. Because Paul is basically quoting verbatim, word by word, Jesus' own words. In Matthew 23, Jesus stands before his accusers. Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Those words fell out of the mouth of a man who never sinned, who never sinned. And this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's rebuking the high priest as though he looks as though he were alive, but he's a whitewashed wall. He's a dead man. And he's in danger of the judgment of God. He's going to be struck by God for his wickedness and for his unrighteousness. And the Apostle Paul intends to awaken this man to his state. He tends to awaken this man to his danger. God is going to strike you. It's a call to repentance. And what happens next in this text is that those who heard that rebuke in verse 4... They began to charge the Apostle Paul with sin. In verse 4, they, they charged the Apostle Paul with reviling God's high priest. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And again, Paul responds with two things. 
He appeals to scripture. And then we're going to see the Apostle Paul appeal to his own ignorance. And he quotes a text from scripture in Exodus 22, verse 28. And that text says this. It says, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And the word of God, uh, the text that he quotes here, reminds us that as we stand before dignitaries and rulers and officials, there's an appropriate respect that God's word commands us to have as we as we address kings and rulers and authorities. And Paul quotes that text and says, yes, that text is in the word of God. Yes, scripture does say that. And then his next move is this. In verse 5, he says, but I didn't know he was the high priest. Yes, Scripture says that, but I didn't know that this man was the high priest. And the Apostle Paul, he appeals to his ignorance. And that's an interesting thing, right? And there's a lot of disagreement over exactly what's going on in this specific phrase. And it's been summed up in basically two ways. And the first is the sarcastic view. That what the Apostle Paul is doing when he says, I didn't even know that this man was the high priest, is he's taking a sarcastic tone towards this high priest. And he's basically saying this, you mean a man like that, a high priest? I didn't know a man like that could be the high priest. You mean this wicked Ananias, God's high priest? And this was actually the view of John Calvin. That the Apostle Paul was mocking this man's unfitness for the office. And those who take this view, they point out that Paul had a high priest. His name was the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, and this Ananias, he was an unqualified imposter. And so that's one view of what's happening in this text. That, that he was sarcastically, I don't even know this man. And the other view is the sincere view. That Paul sincerely did not recognize this man as the high priest. And those who take this view um, point out that maybe they had never met before. Okay, Paul had been gone from Jerusalem, even with his Jewish background and even with his dealings with the Sanhedrin. He had been gone from Jerusalem for many years at this point, And it's possible that he had never had personal interaction with this specific High priest and others point out from the book of Galatians that it could have been a scenario um, that Paul heard the order given to be struck. But because of bad eyesight that he references in the book of Galatians, that he didn't know who gave the order. So there you have it, the sarcastic view and the sincere view. And you ask me, well, which one do you think is right? And, and I love just humbling myself before the word of God and before my local church. I have no idea which one of those uses, right? I, I really don't know. Um, but I do know that the important thing for us in this text is that we see that the Apostle Paul, um, he, he's sinless be, be, before this council. The council, the Sanhedrin, they're the wicked ones in opposition to God. Paul is taking his stand uh, for his own innocence and, and we're about to see him pivot in, in verse 6. Um, and he's going to pivot this whole uh, meeting before the Sanhedrin in, in verse 6. And he's going to shift the focus. He's going to shift the focus away from him and his own in, in, innocence. 
and, and what he's supposedly done wrong. And he's going to take it right to the heart of the matter. And he's going to drag in this theological doctrine. Okay? This theological foundational gospel doctrine. He's going to take them to the heart. Uh, the, the, the real root of the disagreement. And we see the Apostle Paul appeal to the resurrection from the dead. Now, he knows that this council, the Sanhedrin, is made up of these two bodies. Uh, the text tells us that there were some Pharisees and that there were some Sadducees in this council. And it's important for us to understand exactly how the text lays it out that the Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin, they believed in the resurrection. And then the Sadducees, uh, who made up the majority of this council, they did not believe in the resurrection. And here's the important thing for us. It wasn't just as simple as... I do or do not believe bodies rise from um, rise after death. There was more to it than that. That this would have included a belief in a future state after death. That human beings will die and then they will be raised and they will enter into a future state. And this will be a, a, a state of reward or punishment. Okay, And the Apostle Paul appeals to this central gospel doctrine and, 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 he, and, he, and he splits the Sanhedrin in half and we know which one of these groups in the Sanhedrin was right we, we know which one of these groups was right because we know what the Old Testament says about the resurrection we know that the Sanhedrins were, were right because the Old Testament itself it teaches a bodily resurrection from the dead it teaches that every human being will be raised Judged by God and either rewarded or punished. And let's read that for ourselves in Daniel chapter 12. It says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everla everlasting contempt. This is the Old Testament um, version of the doctrine of the resurrection. Okay? That every human being that you ever will lay eyes on fits into this grid. They're going to sleep in the dust of the earth. And they're going to awake either to everlasting life. Or they're going to awake to everlasting contempt. Every human being will fit into this grid. You have um, two, two states and nothing in the middle. Everlasting life. Or eternal punishment. Old Testament version of the resurrection. The Old Testament taught this. The, Pharisee, the Pharisees understood this rightly. That the Bible in fact teaches a resurrection and a future state before God. And Jesus himself teaches the same thing in John chapter 5. He says this. He says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And I just want to pause right there. And I want to personally address every single person in this room. And I want you to know that the word of God 
promises that there's coming a day, not only that you will die, but that Jesus Christ will authoritatively speak and your body will come out of the tomb. No matter what you believe, no matter who you are, and no matter what you have done, Jesus will speak. And all who are in the tomb will hear his voice. Is that not a glorious picture of Jesus Christ? He's going to raise every human being. And it's not even going to be hard for him. He's going to speak. Speak. I was, I was reading in my own time with the Lord just this week. And I read that story of Jesus raising that 12-year-old little girl from the dead. And you know how he did it? He came in that room and he didn't shout. He didn't have to say it multiple times. He leans down with, with the tenderness of a father waking up a little child. And he says, child arise. Child arise. And there's coming a time where every person who belongs to the Lord Jesus is going to hear those tender words arise. To the resurrection of life forever. And we're being warned in this text that there's also a resurrection of judgment. Everyone will be judged according to what they have done. They will stand before the Lord Jesus. And the Bible reminds us that in that day and in that moment, Jesus will not be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The book of Revelation reminds us that his eyes will be a flame of fire. And his voice will sound like the, like the peals of mighty thunder. And there will be trembling in the presence of the Son of Man. Jesus Christ will raise the dead with the voice of his mouth. And so what is Paul doing here? He's laying the foundation for his gospel. You understand that? That there's certain preparatory doctrines... That lay a foundation for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Doctrine like the creation. Okay? If we don't have a God who made every single one of us, then guess what? We're not accountable to Him as, as our King. And we don't have to worry about this puny little God judging us. The doctrine of God the Creator prepares us for the Gospel. And in the same way, this doctrine of resurrection prepares us for the good news of Jesus. And you think about this. How foundational is the resurrection? If it falls to the wayside, what good is the gospel? If we're not going to die and rise and stand before God and give account of our life, who gives a rip what Jesus has done? But if we are, but if we are in fact going to be raised from the dead, then how glorious is the good news of the gospel. Free offer of salvation from sin through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's doing in this meeting. Is he's laying this foundation by appealing to this common ground that he has with the Pharisees. Appealing to this uh, gospel doctrine of the resurrection. And there's, a, and, and there's a lesson for us there. That we ought to do that. We ought to find common beliefs with other people and use those beliefs to evangelize them. That's exactly what he's headed to do in this meeting. But the problem is that when he lays his cards on the table of his doctrine, 
that doctrine produces a division in the Sanhedrin. And did you know that about doctrine? That's one of the things that we're, that, that doctrine is scolded in our culture, that doctrine divides. Yes, it does. Yes, it does divide. It does divide. Gospel doctrine divides true believers from false believers. And it divides this assembly in half. And things go berserk. And the Romans are scared. Paul's going to be torn apart. And so he's snatched out of this meeting with the Sanhedrin. And so let's come full circle. And let's understand where the Apostle Paul stands at this moment. Okay? He's been rescued from flogging. And you, and you think about, what if that happened to you on the way to church today? You'd be feeling like, man, you know, I, I dodged a bullet today. You know, I was about to be flogged. And then all of a sudden, you know, that citizenship, it came in handy, you know, this morning. And then just moments later, he's rescued from um, this council that the majority of them would have his life. They hate him. Okay. And then I want us to set this in the setting of the book of Acts. That from Acts chapter 21 up to this point, seven days have happened. Okay? Seven days. We're on the backside of a week since he arrived in Jerusalem. And I want you to think about what would be in the Apostle Paul's mind at this point. You think about the week that you had. And at this point in the text, in the last seven days... Paul had experienced the emotional pain of being rejected by others in the body of Christ. An inside job, an inside jab, those are especially painful, okay? And he experienced that, that he comes with that massive gift to the Jewish church. And they reject him, by and large. They cast suspicion on him. They don't know if he's the real deal. And you imagine navigating the emotional pain of that. We're told in Romans 9 that Paul loves these Jews so much that he wishes that he could be cursed by God if only they could be saved. If only they could be saved. And so in this week, he's experienced that emotional pain of harm and hurt done from within the body of Christ. And on top of that, his character has been assaulted. That ever happened to you? That somebody told a lie about you. That you went left or that you did A and somebody said you went right and that you did B. That's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was maliciously lied about. They said he defiled the temple. He did not defile the temple. And then on this particular week, he was beat within an inch of death. He was beat within an inch of death. Very few of us, if any, in this room have been pummeled by a mob of people that hate you and don't want to see you breathe anymore. They want you to die mob style on the spot. No court, no trial. Take your life right now. That's how his week has gone. Okay. And he's rescued from this mob by Roman justice, this perverted form of justice that rips him out of a mob beating and then just moments later is about to strap him to a whipping post and beat him within another inch of his life, ripping flesh off his body to force him to confess sin that he didn't commit. That's how his week is gone. 
And then he stands before the leaders in Israel, the men who lead his countrymen, those Jews that he loves, the one whom he wishes he could take their place. I wish I could be cursed by God if only my countrymen could be saved. And he's standing before these 71 representatives of the Jewish nation. And what happens? He got punched in the mouth in that, in that assembly. And I want you to think about in this moment where the Apostle Paul's mind is. All the way to Jerusalem. He's been hearing over and over these prophecies that when you get there, Paul, you're going to suffer. They're going to bind you. It's not going to go good for you, Paul. And I want you to imagine him sitting in his jail cell that night and him and, and perhaps he's thinking this. Maybe this is it, Lord. Maybe this is it, Lord. Maybe, maybe this is where I give my life for Jesus. He told us that he was ready to die for Christ. And I want us to consider that there is beautiful truth about Jesus and what happens next. And so you think about this question. What will the Lord Jesus do for his servant in a valley like this? What will he do for his servant in a valley like this? You had, you had a hard week this week. I want you to think about your week this week side by side with what we see Paul enduring for the name of Jesus Christ. And let us take great comfort in how Jesus begins to deal with his servant in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 11. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and he said, Take courage. Take courage. Take courage. Right in the middle of these circumstances, right in the middle of the most hellacious week of Paul's life, right in the middle of it, Jesus comes and he wants Paul to know one thing. I am right here. I'm in the room. I'm in the room. This is beautiful truth about Jesus Christ. Not only does our God the Lord Jesus, not only does he know when we suffer, and he does. He wants us to know that he's right here. So he comes and verse 11 says he stands beside the Apostle Paul. He comes to sustain his servant with his presence. And then he feeds his servant his promises. This is where strength comes from to live the Christian life. From the presence of Jesus, from the promises of of his mouth. This is how we get strength to serve our Lord. And, and brothers and sisters, we get this beautiful glimpse. He's dealing with Paul in this way. In the midst of intense suffering. And our God would have us to know. Every single believer in this room. That when we suffer. Not only does he know it. He's with us. Our God is with us. When we suffer. Always. Jesus says he will never forsake you. Think of how beautiful that is. He will never forsake you. He's always in the room. It's always as though he were right there. And then consider this. This is true 100% of the time. And no one else that loves you in this world can say that for you. That I will be with you always. Even to the end of the age. Your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your children, they will fail you. Jesus never will. He's always with us, especially in the hardest moments 
of our life. Look how kind he is to Paul here. Paul didn't deserve this. This is the kindness of Jesus. In this moment of discouragement, Jesus shows up and he stands beside his servant. And I want us to remember that God has been kind to us too. Because God has given us promises in his word that tell us that we have the same presence that was manifested to the Apostle Paul with us always. Even to the end of the age. Especially as we suffer for the Lord. Listen to this in, in Psalm 23. These are glorious promises from the word of God. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. With us. God with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. You see what God's word does over and over? It doesn't say, follow Jesus and you'll never suffer. And nothing will ever, ba ever bad will happen to you. That's not what it says, does it? It tells us that we will suffer. That we will endure hardship. But praise to the living God. Over and over and over again. It promises that we will never suffer alone. As followers of Christ, we will never suffer alone. Our God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Isaiah 43, verse 2, same, uh, same promise. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. In the hardest moments of your life, in the hardest week of your life, Jesus would have you to know, I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to abandon you. A hundred times out of a hundred, I'm going to be there. I'm faithful. I'm right here. He's the, he, he's the one who met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember this story in the book of Daniel? This is our God. We go down into the fire. We're cast into the fire. And where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? He's the one that comes down into the fire with us. And those who are looking in say, there, weren't there three that we threw in the fire? And yet there's a fourth one there, like the Son of Man. This is our God with His people in the midst of suffering. This is a beautiful promise from the Word of God that Christians will never suffer alone. Ever. Never, ever. Jesus died on the cross for His people. He said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Do you know that? That's a real thing that Jesus in his human flesh, he was cast off and cut off from God. He was forsaken by God the Father. And do you know why? So that me and you would never have to be forsaken by God the Father. Never a moment in our life will we know if we're in Christ, what it's like to be forsaken by God. Never a moment. Every Christian, they're going to look back on their life. And every Christian is going to have this testimony. Um, this is, this is a, a worship song, a Matt Redmond worship song. And it says this. And you think about how, how beautiful this is. That we're going to be able to look back 
on every single day. And we're going to be able to say this. Never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did He leave us on our own. You are faithful, God. You are faithful. How beautiful is that? Just like Paul. He gets to the end of his life and he looks back and he knows that Jesus was with him. We're going to get to the end of our life and we're going to look back and we're going to hold the banner over our life that our God is faithful. Not one time in our life did he abandon us. This is the love and the grace of Jesus. And I would encourage you this morning to make that testimony personal to you. Not abstract doctrine that you fill out a Scantron doctrine survey. But that you live by this doctrine. That you draw strength and courage and encouragement that Jesus is with me all the days, even to the end of the age. In this text, verse 11, Jesus draws near and he speaks these words to the Apostle Paul. And he says, take courage. Take courage. This is... Really similar to the words that we see several times in the Old Testament. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And I want you to think about how much courage would have um, just exploded in the Apostle Paul's heart in that moment. I mean, you think about that. If he had a million enemies on planet Earth, he wouldn't have feared, feared a million. Why? Because he's looking at the face of Jesus Christ. Think about that. The baddest demon in hell could have walked in that room and he would have been completely fearless. Why? Because Jesus was there and he saw Jesus. This is how we get strong. This is how we're strengthened. This is how we take courage. And I want you to think about this question. Well, how do, how, but, but seriously, how do we get that courage? How do we get that courage if Jesus is not showing up in the middle of the night? And, and, and setting our bedrooms ablaze with His glory. How do we get that encouragement? And the thing I want to remind us of is the Word of God answers that question. It tells us how we get the same encouragement. Even if we don't experience these visions. And the, and the visible manifestation of the glory of Christ. And the way the Bible says that we get this courage. is spelled out beautifully in Hebrews chapter 11. We get it by seeing him who is invisible. We get it by seeing the one who is invisible. We get it by faith. We get it by faith. That over and over when God says in his word, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, we believe it. And we, we, when we really believe God's word and God's promises... We get that encouragement that it were as though Jesus were right here, right here. We get it by seeing the one who is invisible. And I want to remind us that these promises that are scattered all over God's word of his covenant presence given to his people. Those promises are more real than your pulse right now. They're more real than your feelings right now. They're more real than the circumstances that you're in right now. They're the word of God. The unbreakable promises of God. And the last thing that we see in this passage is we see Jesus give Paul a very specific promise in verse 11. That he is going to go and preach the gospel in Rome. 
There's a lot of distance between where he's at right now. He's in jail in Jerusalem. But Jesus comes and says, no, you're going to bear witness about me in Rome. And we're reminded of two things from that promise. And one is that Paul, when he heard those words from Jesus, all that distance between Jerusalem and Rome, Paul was invincible. You catch that? Why? Because Jesus said you're going to Rome. And that means if Satan would have unleashed all fury of hell on Paul, guess what would have happened? Still going to Rome. Because Jesus said you're going to testify in Rome. And that takes us to this principle that we see. That we are invincible as servants of Christ until our appointed time is done. Jesus will have his way with his servants. Jesus will have his way with his servants. And it also reminds us that Jesus is not done with us yet as his people. How encouraging is that to you this morning? Jesus has more for you to do. Jesus is not done with you yet. And you say, maybe if you're struggling this morning, you say, well, how do you know Jesus is not done with me? Because you're alive. You're not dead yet. He, he, he's going to use you for his glory. And then you're going to die, be raised and be with Christ forever. There's fruitful work for you to do. There's fruitful labor ahead of you. Jesus is not done with you yet. Our days in Psalm 139, we're told that all, all of our days are written in a book. You know, it's, it's, it really is that fixed. That before you ever drew breath in this world, the word of God says your final day was marked off by, by our sovereign, glorious God. And we're drawing great encouragement of how God deals with Paul in this passage that we're safe in his arms. We're safe in his plan. That we can trust our sovereign God. Jesus is with us every single moment. And this is where we find strength to live courageously for Jesus Christ. That's the command. That's the exhortation that he gives in that prison cell. Take courage, brothers and sisters. Press on to serve Jesus, brothers and sisters. Why? Because he's with you. Because he's with you and all of hell can be unleashed against you and Jesus will have his way. Jesus will glorify his holy name in your life. Let's praise the Lord for his love for us, for his care for us. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up our voice to you again, Lord. And as my brother prayed earlier, God, we are, we are unworthy people, Lord. And there's nothing in us, God, nothing in any one of us, Lord, that can bind your favor, God. You have shown us free mercy and free grace, Lord, and you promised to be with us every moment of every day. And I pray for Grace Community Church that you would make us a people that know that Jesus is with us, Lord. God, please convince us more and more of that reality and of these promises day by day. And fill us with the boldness and fill us with the courage that comes from knowing that you stand by us and you strengthen us, Lord. God, do this today. Minister to your people.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.